0: All right, Matthew, welcome to episode 32 of the Performance Advantage podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Endurance Training Hub and Smart MTB Training, online self-coaching software for you to become a better athlete. Introductory pricing, $99 per year, and that is everything, and that is like, I don't know, $7 or $8 a month. That's, what do they say? A cup of coffee. Wow. Yeah. I mean, at the rate I drink coffee, um,
1: I could buy, yeah, I'll, you know, let's not get into it, but for a day, you know, you do the math (laughs) and uh, that is a good deal, you know, compared to the monthly price, which is also a deal. That's still a $260 savings every year.
0: Yeah. So Matt, over the weekend, one of the biggest achievements in the running, if not sporting world happened with the Ineos 159. Yeah, that's crazy. So, you know, I'm
1: not a runner. Well, I mean, I yeah, am, uh, right? I am, yeah, I yeah. am. <laughs> um, you know, I have that race coming up, right? When is it? February. February, yeah. I got plenty of time. Um, but, you know, I think like the whole world was like captivated by this runner breaking
0: the two-hour barrier for a marathon yeah and so for those who may have missed it um eliot choge of uh, kenya ran one hour 59 minutes and 40 seconds first of all can we just like think just think about the speed he ran like yeah for two hours how do you yeah like it's amazing it is phenomenal it's almost like People aren't as appreciative of this, what happened, because it's so unbelievable. Like, it's so untouchable for so many people. It's not like someone broke the this downhill speed record on a road bike, where everyone can go fast on a road bike, so they understand, like, this guy just sort of got an aero tuck and got a longer hill involved. They're like, no one can... like. Percentages wise, you can say no one can run that fast for a kilometer. Like so, they put up a stat: there's about thirty-one million park runs this is a five-kilometer run run around the world. There's like thirty or less, or twenty-four of them had been run at the pace that Eliot did for his entire marathon. Wow, forty-two point two k's or. Is it 26 miles? Um, 26.2 miles? I don't know, actually. Which is an unofficial world record. And it is unofficial because they implemented a whole bunch of strategies that means that the record can't be ratified. Uh, In order for a record to be ratified, it needs to be in an actual IAAF, which is the International Athletics Federation, a sanctioned race um so if you think about you know your new york your boston auckland marathon sydney wherever you are in the world london berlin those kind of marathons they're going to be um a ratified world record um uh, but regardless it's it's still everyone knows he did it yeah
1: yeah yeah i looked at the the they had a youtube live stream and it had like five million views it was yeah. just when was this on the weekend
0: just a couple days ago saturday in new zealand it was saturday evening over there it was saturday morning in vienna austria yeah so the big question in my mind is do you think that youtube video will
1: ever see more views than gangnam style well Uh, that's like one of the most viewed videos ever
0: important it's an important question yeah yeah Yeah. but that's like a couple billion so but and it's not as long you know
1: you got to commit to yeah, um, two hours. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But it's cool, so um, people should check that out. We're going to do, uh, we'll do a bit of talking about um, the
0: science behind some of that. Yeah, yeah, and, that's what um, I wanted to to touch on, as to yeah. why they implemented different strategies yeah. and how essentially it was achieved.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. But um, I would encourage everyone to check out the YouTube video as well, because... You know, they bring on people like us, you know, sports scientists that were heavily involved in the, well, they are heavily involved in the process of this, and I think that'd be something really cool for us to do as sports scientists, but, um, yeah, get an insight into what sports scientists are thinking about uh, if you watch that video.
0: Yep. Um, so, Matt, when we talk about running... I had a good you, run over the weekend. I know.
1: We, we, <laughs> yep. I was uh, wondering when we were going to talk about this. Um, so I saw these photos come up on Facebook and it was this guy running and he crossed the finish line and he looked so happy. Just incredibly happy. And then after he crossed the line, he looked incredibly um, relieved. Right? He's like, happy. Yes, I did it. And then the next photo was him on the ground. Um, in pain. And that was you. That was me. That was you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I won the Talpo fifty K.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I know that was a like we've been talking about this actually for a while. How you had the hundred K and I think the fifty K is always the end of your season. But you yeah, hundred yeah, K so in the this, mix
0: now. This was normally the hundred K that I did at this event. Um and I want to talk about it, not just uh, <laughs> voyeurism or whatever, but um, to tie like it in with the with the the, the one fifty nine, and not because it's anywhere near comparable, but some of the um, like limiting factors in in performance um, are the same across any runner, from our listener to Elliot choge So, uh, one of the biggest things that we spoke about was like my questioning fitness my fitness after running 100ks um, my best ever performance over 100ks and then obviously needing to chill out to make sure i could recover and then run um a a really good competitive 50 kilometer trail race um and i was with your words of support (laughs) um diligent enough to do the training that I needed to, and not more, um, potentially even less, and that got me on the start line, and probably the best physical condition I think I've ever felt like I'd been in before a race, and um, it made the race go amazingly, uh, just amazingly, like, you know when you you start the race and for some reason, you have that feeling like, oh, I think this could be a good day. And you start and you know, like, I'm on today. Um, and that's not to say it wasn't without its challenges. Um, I was running with uh, this guy, Cam Holden, and uh, he pushed, we pushed hard all the way. You know, it was a trail race with like reasonable amount of elevation, maybe a bit over a thousand meters for the whole thing. We were maybe 400 meters elevation into it. And I still did a 130 half marathon. Um, through the you know, first 21Ks of a 50K race. So I knew it was going to be a tough one. And uh, yeah, we, we get in, I, we come through halfway um, and they have a halfway race, like a 24K race. And so everyone is there and we got there before the start of their race, like five minutes before. So everyone is there at the start of the race. And then we came through and they were cheering. It was so cool. Um, I <laughs> were you looking like, at your power meter when you're going through? Definitely. So I was looking at my power meter the whole time I had my power zone set up. It's really, it's, it's so hard um, to calculate what power you can hold for different durations um, because what we have in terms of um, a, a data record and recommendations and percentages of thresholds is all based on the road marathon and down that's what we can work off um when we start getting into the trail race like a 50k if you just apply that to the road you'd only drop maybe five percent of your threshold of the overall like output and to be able to cover those extra eight kilometers now for me to cover those extra eight kilometers at my marathon pace would maybe put me around three hours, um, but I was doing that fifty kilometers on trail, so it was just under four hours, and so that makes it like really difficult to try and figure out what is your zone mm. um, and because how much you have him. like downhills where you're recovering, so you can maybe push harder. Potentially recovering depends on what gradient mm. they are. Right. If there's a certain gradient where you're just running faster, you putting out the same effort and then there's a gradient where yeah you're sort of chilling out a little bit and you're getting a lot and then there's a gradient beyond that where you're damaging your legs um, so at the time it may feel like recovery but there is a point and if that was the start like the very start of the race so it's like a 10 kilometer downhill of a 50 kilometer race how does that impact kilometer 45 onwards yeah. Like these are the things we don't know. Like, you can look at your power output and say, based off of percentages, which is what I did, I was like, I should be around 400 to 430 watts um, because I I tried to sort of extrapolate what I could do out from different, uh, like my 100K and my marathon and, and, and training, what I had done. Um, but then, yeah, you, you also like mountain biking compared to road cycling you have these huge spikes because you have switchbacks you have short climbs down little downs undulations um technical bits and so how does that affect from there into the the final 20ks or so yeah. and i was well in my zone i was feeling comfortable climb up out of um as in taupo kinlock area there's a 5k climb felt good definitely pushing got into the front and I was like okay cool now it's about maintaining the lead I need to stay in control and then I really started to fall to bits um and I really struggled to maintain my power um fast forward through the last 15ks of questioning <laughs> whether I was going to finish how I was going to do it slowing down acceptance some stuff I've worked on with Jay Barrett um the mental skills coach uh the guy who was really on last got, week. Week, got me got th- me yep got me through to to the finish in the front by one minute you know and nice. over 50 kilometers that is um but i had absolutely emptied the tank um but uh it was also a hot day i was trying to juggle my hydration because i drank less because there's a lot of climbing normally um in a longer event maybe five hours plus i just use my two liter camelback because I drink so much, I sweat so much, but because I was traveling at a fast enough speed that it, the brakes between aid stations was around half an hour, I was going for a lot less fluid, so I wasn't to have to carry as much weight, which did make a big difference. Because that would slow all, you down. It does slow you down a lot, because um, I had a 300 mil handheld compared to a 2 liter. although I don't have to stop as much. You only stop for 10 seconds to fill it up. That's one point seven kgs. Now that's that makes a big difference going Yeah, up Especially here. over fifty Ks. Yeah. yeah. So um and until and I had a backup soft flask, which I could which got me up another three hundred and fifty mils, so getting up um to seven hundred mils, but uh that you know, I start to get hotter and once you start to get in accumulate heat you slow down and this is an important factor in the 159 um and it's how you you manage that heat accumulation yeah Um, because heat's going to happen no matter what Um, yeah you and especially when you are running uphill later in a race as the temperature gets up we started at 10 a.m so you know um by and there's probably around three hours into it so 1 a 1 p.m so it's sort of the hottest part of the day and i'm running up the last final like real climb of the trail i'm not i'm moving uh slow you know it's too slow to get convective cooling yeah um, yeah so i so start to and, but just... i'm also working really hard so now there's nothing to really cool me down because i'm not moving fast enough and there's a lot to accumulate heat. And I'm um, also not potentially have enough fluid to drink. And it, you start to to get too hot.
1: Yeah, I'm just happy, you know, because that you held on to your fitness. Because there was a while there where you were doubting how much fitness you were going to have. And yeah. I'm sure if you open your training peaks and you look at your performance management chart where it shows with your fitness... Like, that's probably way down, isn't it? Um, no, it's yeah, telling do, you how I fit you yeah,
0: are. Yeah, it's, it says I'm less fit, for, for sure. Yeah, But if you funny. look at it objectively, it's like, oh, actually, it hasn't gone down that yeah, much. Yeah, but
1: this is the... So if we're looking at measurements, this is the only thing we have to go off of. And so this is important. This has been coming up in the last few weeks with athletes that I'm working with. Because around the world, it seems like most people are within some sort of a break from training. So some of the important races have just finished. There's a while until the next important ones. So they're on a break. And you look at your training peaks performance management chart, which shows how fit you are based on all your training. And it's showing no fitness. But then some of them, while while they haven't been training and they've been taking a break, they're actually putting out some really good power numbers, like some, some of their best ever. And, you know, this bit of freshness. The fatigue's gone. But they didn't lose all that fitness. It doesn't
0: just go away overnight like that. Um Yeah, and uh, Strava has the same one. I talked about that. There's a video on it for your phone. But they have and uh, they have a reasonably good fitness tracker, fatigue tracker on the desktop version. And the freshness far outweighs the fitness. The gain in freshness, like it really it it does shock me more and more the less i do going into events the better i do yes um and so that has me rethinking how close i was doing a lot of my key sessions to some of the big events um because as we've we've spoken before you you want to it's it's really and it's going to be different for different people right but for for me you know, two weeks out for a marathon, three weeks out for a hundred or an ultra was when I banked that, that last big session, you know, cause you, you need to keep training. You need to keep pushing your, your limits and maintaining a certain load so that, and conditioning more so, so that when you get to the race, you are ready for a marathon to run 42.2 Ks. But the as you say, as you
1: say, you need to be fresh as well. So if you're still carrying that fatigue for another two weeks into your
0: important event, then maybe you're not going into it as fresh as you could be. Exactly. Um, but you also, yeah, you don't want to be too fresh really early on.
1: Right. It's a fine line. And that's the art of what we do. And that's where the science kind of falls short. And the experience of the coach kind of comes in.
0: Yeah. So then, if we so that was my yeah I I finished completely spent and it was abs one of my best ever performance like as content as you can be we can you have the ability you've trained physically to push yourself mentally and you're able to to just achieve like pushing your limits yeah like I did win but I honestly it wouldn't even have mattered like that was what I yeah, that was gonna that be was my question.
1: Would you be happy if you didn't win? You know, and that's. And actually,
0: I I wouldn't be as happy. Yeah. Way. <laughs> like um, especially because the guy I who came up, um, who ran through, um, the guy I was running with, I dropped him, and then this other guy was chasing me down, and I knew he would be because last year, Richard was the guy who overtook me in the 100k with 15k's to go um and i was in second and he came overtook me so i moved into third and that was so that really hurt it really hurt (laughs) uh so, so i think um i would have been a bit disappointed if if he had caught me um if i'd gone from first into second or third or somewhere else um but in the end especially working with jay and some of the the mental stuff we'd Worked on in terms of ticking those kind of boxes. It was, I think, I would have been still, yeah, ecstatic. And my time was like really good. Uh, was what I wanted. Yeah. Cool man. Congrats. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you.
1: uh
0: Now, if we get into it, the the yep. one fifty nine.
1: Yeah. So what they, we they tried to do this a few years ago, didn't they? The yeah, Nike so Sub Nike Sub And there's
0: even, there's even part of it around what they've called it. So, sub two, um, psychologically creates a barrier. So, this is something that, um, sports psychologists have talked about in the past. If you're trying to break a barrier, you need to set the goal just below it. If you go, I want to run a sub 20, minute 5k, sub 25, like you want to go, I want to run a 1958. I want to run a nineteen fifty, so that then sets your your anchor point below. Like it starts to put nineteen in there. When you start to say sub something, you 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 put this big barrier up, and you're like, I need to be able to get under this barrier somehow. Mm. Um. Okay. So even so, they change that from going sub two to one fifty nine. So now there's no two involved. It's just like, I'm running 159. It's just, how do I do it now? Mm. As opposed to, there's a barrier. What's, how do I break this barrier of sub two, the Nike sub two? Um, So yeah, Nike sub two, they did it. And it was what needed to be done to figure out how to get to this point. You know, it's like uh, any of us do some kind of race before we figure out how to do it properly. It's just a learning curve and the the big takeaways from from nike sub 2 where Eliud, the same guy um went uh, i think it was 224 they had pace they had a pace car they had these new nike um vaporflies the new shoes uh they had the pacing the dudes pacing around um and they had a closed off track with no real corners and they tried to get the humidity and temperature at appropriate rate. And all of this contributed to lowering the barrier at the time by well over a minute. Um, but still they didn't break the, the two hour barrier like they just did. Um,
1: yeah. So it's funny in 1985 was
0: one of the early research studies,
1: um, where scientists were speculating whether it would be possible to break a two hour marathon. And, at this time they were you know utilizing the critical velocity concept so this person needs to be able to run at this velocity this needs to be their threshold for them to be able to do this two-hour marathon so in science and obviously you know in just in running in general people have been thinking about this for a long time and they really went out of their way to find the best course so they took the uh, organizers from the London Marathon and they brought them in to find the best place to do it. I believe it was the London Marathon. But the course that they found, there's only 2.4 meters of elevation gain, in yeah, in the lap. Like that is about as flat as a pancake.
0: Yeah, when you're trying to run a marathon, you know, like you get, it's not just like you're doing a mile. Yeah. You've got to find a, a huge amount. And they did, so they did laps. But they couldn't
1: just do it around a track, right? Because there's too much turning. So actually, yeah. what they made sure to do in this track um, is they made sure that 90% of it was straight. There were only two big turns, there were two roundabouts. One was 800 meters. So the rest of the time they were going straight because, um, you know, some of the scientists from Stride and um, some other universities they calculated the savings. Uh, in time that they could have, and it was like something like 41 seconds or something like that by minimizing the turns, by having as few turns
0: as possible. Yeah, you're losing like a at least a second per turn.
1: Yeah, so obviously if you're going for to break the sub two, you need every second you can get. And we need to bear in mind that he just made it under the two hours, right? He was 159.40 something. Yeah, so- 40, yeah. If you know, maybe if there were a few more turns and they did everything else right, he would have been he wouldn't have made the goal, right? That's quite possible,
0: yeah. Um, so I guess what I think is really important and not to take and definitely not to take anything away from Aliud Kipchoge is he is a once in a generational athlete, like his world record is already. 201 something that he did on a actual berlin marathon course so we already have an athlete who is capable of running faster than anyone else over the marathon course in the entire world and he hasn't lost a marathon since 2014 and now you have an athlete capable of running very very close to two hours what they the sports scientists and the event organizers and the whole management team as well as his coach were able to put around this once in a generational athlete is those one percent time savings across an entire marathon which you got to remember is two hours 120 minutes one percent of 120 is like 120 seconds no it'd be a minute Point 0.2 <laughs> but you know and it's a minute point 0.2 right one percent yeah over 120 minutes yeah yes it is yes it is um so there you've got one just one percent just one percent is almost going to put them under so if you get two percent you're getting 2.4 minutes if you can find two if you input two percent of time savings around this once in a generational athlete is already really close, runs a one, a 201 something already, you you then get there. So what they did is they set out to put that 2% saving on this guy. So a lot of people don't really talk about his training, but um, because it wasn't changed. He didn't really have to. He didn't have to change anything. He wasn't running any faster per se, like in terms of his effort. His effort was maybe even less because of everything put around him. Um, but it's just everything else
1: was optimized around him. Yeah, like yeah, like so drafting the the course,
0: his shoes.
1: His, like obviously, his training was dialed. We knew he could run fast, and then. He, He just had people around him. They had a car in front of him with lasers being shot on the ground, so everyone knew where to run. Right? Like you don't get that in in the Berlin Marathon.
0: No. So, and we start right. We start with the course. It's dead flat. It has no dead turns in it. Um, There is two point four meters of elevation, which is um, reported to be just enough to break up his biomechanics enough to slightly recruit muscles in a different way across the whole race, as well as the turns. Um, So that you weren't weren't stuck in, like, essentially a treadmill. So you got the course. Now, the other part of where the course was um, in Vienna, Austria, was the shelter from the wind with the trees, um, the clarity of the air due to the, the trees, and I think the most important is the humidity and temperature. Yeah. So
1: he, he um, Elliot, uh reckons that ten percent or ten
0: degrees and eighty percent humidity is what he really likes to run in. Yeah. And temperature is like I mentioned in mine, um, where I, I really started to struggle, and I do struggle in the heat. When you begin to accumulate heat when you're going at whatever pace especially in this sense you get you begin to get hot and yeah, that makes sense it's like yeah, our working muscles
1: are constantly breaking down food substrates right and as we do that we're we're just loo- we're creating heat our bodies aren't totally efficient this is why your motor in your car gets hot because it's not 100% efficient at converting fuel into forward motion and our bodies are exactly the same way. So what happens is we create heat. We get hot as we're running, as you do. So you, why would you want to do this on a hot day? It, as, and as you start to sweat more, right? That's what your body's doing. It's cooling. It's sweating so that way the sweat can evaporate and take some heat with it. Keep your body at the, uh, the proper temperature. So what do you have to do then as you're sweating? Take in more fluids because we know as we're exercising and we start to get dehydrated, our performance starts to go down. So that's why you were drinking a lot during your long run, but you also didn't want to drink too much because then you'd have to
0: work harder and carry more water. (laughs) Yeah, and if you start, and then if you tip over that point where you start to accumulate heat, so you need this um, homeostasis of heat loss and heat gain. So it's like there's no, because once you accumulate heat, it's, it's, it's accumulating you're getting hotter. And once you start to get too hot, you have to slow down in order, or like just the, whatever theory of um, conscious, subconscious, unconscious uh, regulation of physiology you buy into is you'll slow down because otherwise you're, you'll cook yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, you don't need illness. to buy
1: into that, you know, cause that's just, that is how it is. You know, that's that is physiology. Um,
0: but then if it's too cold you then are losing too much heat and you're going to have to try and heat yourself up and your muscles will get too cold there won't be adequate blood flow uh, to the working muscles and you then have to fight to maintain the pace so if you can at 10% um, sorry 10 degrees and 80% humidity you have this perfect balance point in which your sweat um, is evaporating and you are sweating if it's too cold you won't sweat and you won't be able to absorb any fluid even though you still need it for nutritional purposes Um, so if you can get this temperature perfect and the humidity good then you don't have too much air density to run through and you're able to maintain Uh, a good temperature that's not going to impact you by accumulating heat losing heat or over um, losing too much fluid yeah there was a lot of
1: work going on uh, for thermoregulation when we were doing our phds because we like we had a thermoregulation like we had a heat chamber where you go in and you exercise super hot super cold super humid super not humid whatever and we were Like, not us, but we were usually the participants, weren't we? And Yeah. But uh, they were measuring all kinds of things on us, sweat rates, and there's an optimal temperature for your muscles to operate, where the oxygen is being offloaded from the hemoglobin, and you're able to use that oxygen readily. So too cold, you're not able to do that. This is kind of why we do warm-ups. But too hot, you're losing all the fluid, and you're also not taking all that oxygen that you could be because your blood's being directed to just below your skin so you can lose heat from your blood because your blood's starting to get too hot. So thermoregulation is really important, and um, that's why they chose this day
0: with these conditions in this place and on this track. Yeah, and its I think it was just above sea level. Essentially zero meters above sea level so the oxygen and the air is as oxygen rich as somewhere is going to be and with with the park and the trees around not only providing shelter but also providing the most oxygen rich environment that you could run right so you're not getting any contaminants you're you're not running in the middle of beijing um it's it's like perfect they found the perfect spot so now you've got some some kind of percentage gains. You've got a performance gain purely from the course and the location of the course. Then the two other major things that they put it um, around them and to optimize it was the pace, car, and group, and the shoes. Oh, well, um, okay. <laughs> so the shoes is a can of worms, and I want to get into that. You Pandora's do want to get into it. I, I do, like, after okay. we talk about the pace car and crew. Okay, okay, so save the shoes for
1: last, then. Okay, so when I saw the pace car, what I saw, you know, the lasers shining on the ground, they were green this time, they were red last time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this so it's basically, like, shining down this, like, the track, when you go to the track, and you can see the lines on either side, there's a nice distance between everyone, and there's a nice straight line in front of you, so you can see... So you're not going ahead of it and you're not going too far behind it. You're trying to stay right on that line. So how did they control the pace of the car? Was it, you know, some, some dude in there, like feathering the
0: gas pedal, like blowing (laughs) fumes into their face or what? No. So, uh, I'll have to double check if it was an electric car, but it was an autonomously driven car. Um, So it wasn't some dude. Just flexing his foot, like you know, when you like just use your big toe, just to, <laughs> just to get it right on on fifty k's an or hour. put
1: it on cruise control, and then suddenly you're going way too fast.
0: Ah, I thought I put it
1: on <laughs> cruise control. Okay, so that's pretty cool to have an autonomously driven car that you're following behind with a laser shining down in Vienna, millions of people around you cheering.
0: Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So. Part of what the car did one they had to figure out how it could maintain or accelerate pace like a human would be running because if you've ever you know um been behind a car on your bike it's pretty often sometimes you get if you've done cycle racing or something you get paced up as soon as they put the gas on they go from they jump like in five kilometer segments you don't do that when you're on a bike let alone when you're running at your maximal pace so you can't afford that car to then get too far ahead and then just slow down and then you know so they had to figure that out
1: yeah because just based on the critical velocity concept like you there's only so much you can do above the sustainable level so we did a podcast on this ages ago so if any huge acceleration is going to take away from the anaerobic capacity that you really need for later on So, it really needs to be
0: as steady state as possible, doesn't it? Yeah. So, they got this. So, that's what the car was able to do. They were able, they had the pace, and the pace needed to be constant. He could not go above it more than, you know, less than a percent, because with the anaerobic work capacity, which I can't remember what podcast we talked about, it's essentially your capacity to work above threshold. And if you have 100 units and he starts taking two out because the car sped up to 245 minutes per kilometer, his average needed to be 250 minutes per kilometer. If you start taking that out, then, you know, he just took 10 units that he really needed. He, yeah, and they're
1: not going to replenish themselves because he's still exercising really hard. So they're yeah, kind of Yeah, and potentially
0: there's a, there's a full-on uh, effect. So this car needed to be spot on. Then it had a huge um, pace clock on it, so you could see what he was, the pace, so that essentially is a wind block, and they did the um, fluid dynamics of, or aerodynamics I guess, of how the wind would flow around that, and by itself it doesn't contribute much because it's so far ahead, you know, maybe 15, 20 meters ahead of the the pack, but then they situated, um, I'd have to have a look, about eight guys in front of him, and some guys behind him. Ooh. So that allowed that the tubulated air that comes back around the car was then broken up again by the paces in front of them, and they all had they all ran on their particular laser spot. The lasers were being shot out from the back of the car, so that they knew exactly where to run, they knew exactly how fast to run, and Elliot sat behind them, and then to avoid any tubulated air, they may draw him back, um, create like a suction they had guys running behind him wow yeah and so that was major that whole process where he did not have to even think about the pace he just had to run he just had to run as relaxed as possible he did he didn't need to go i should speed up or should i he just there's one pace there was one thing he had to control which as a mental load has a big factor you know there's a, there's a some kind of percent there one point i mean point one or something you know if we're getting if we're trying to get this this world-class athlete up beyond this level so there's that and that is just yeah that alongside the conditions was huge so Absolutely. these guys huge.
1: that were running with him um did they all run the same time
0: that he did so how, no, how did that work? They switched them out. So last time in Monza, this Nike Sub 2, part of the, the issue, one was like it got too hot. So he started to overheat um, and had to slow. The second one was the paces weren't well trained in terms of the situation, um, like the formation that they needed to be in. And they some of them weren't well trained enough to run for as long as they did at the pace which was a i think it was each five kilometers maybe wrong that sounds like a major one actually (laughs) yeah yeah and so this time around they all trained together they spent a lot more time on the pacing groups their formation the pace they had to hold how they were switching in and out and they switched them out a lot more often about every two and a half kilometers uh, they switched out 41 paces. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, so they had fresh dudes coming in like every 10 minutes, just continuously cycling through so that no one of them had the potential to slow. Because as soon as someone slows, they can slow Elliot down. Right. And that's what we don't want to happen because we're going for the record. Yeah. So, and if someone drops out, it. The formation is a formation that's as strong as the weakest link. You know, if someone drops out of it, now the whole formation doesn't work. Yeah. 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 Um, that,
1: that's crazy. Um, One of the things that I keep thinking about is, like, how much money went into doing this. Because, like, this isn't something that you and I could go do or, like, that we could have done when we were at the uni. I mean, you know, where we're using, like, an, an old freezer as like a heat chamber, right? Where things are like repurposed and things like that. Like this is money spent for
0: one specific purpose with nothing held back. Yeah. And it's not, you can't even reproduce, you you know, there's nothing to reuse. It's not like everyone then had the marathon on the course. Like they closed this course on this day and all the barriers set up for eight guys at one time (laughs) for, for like this one dude. Yeah, so, but, like, you know, Ineos
1: is a $34 billion company. That's a big company. Like, they got money to burn. So, for them, like, I've probably heard the name, but, like, I was like, oh, what the heck is, is Ineos? So, I went on, searched them on Wikipedia, and they're, like, one of the biggest chemical companies. So, you know, ethics about them supporting some sort of something like this, well, we can talk about that another day, but... um. They would have spent a lot of money on this. And, you know, in 1954, when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, I'm pretty sure he was on his own.
0: Yeah, he was. And (laughs) I don't, I quite, I kind of don't like that comparison that they're throwing out there. Like, as significant as the four minute mile. Like, I don't think so. Like,
1: I don't know. But what do you think, like, in 54, you know, 55 years from now? are we going to be saying oh well come on a 2 hour marathon
0: big deal um prob that's that's possible not not it? a big deal but like the science the sports science and even the professionalism of sport which i think is important and the globalization of sport wasn't there when Roger Bannister ran a sub 4 minute mile
1: but he did yeah. Something that no one had done. Yeah. At the time.
0: Yeah. Just individually as a physical human. Like, it's not like they went around the world, combined, like, literally, like, millions and millions of dollars to put this thing together. Like, it was like one dude by himself decided to defy, uh, I guess common perception of human limitations. Uh yeah, I mean there so was human limits at that time. Now let's get into the shoe.
1: Okay, so because shoes played a big part in Roger Bannister, so we can't overlook that actually. So he wouldn't have been able to do that with um, you know, tennis get shoes. Feet.
0: Right. Um and and this will be, I think, into the future, what defies that S- continuation of the sub two performances into the future. Okay, so right. we're
1: talking shoes. So what I know about shoes is I have these sweet Salming shoes that um, are you know made for natural running. Yeah, I got them from you because th- these are what you use, right? Yeah, so yeah.
0: So I'm sponsored I- by. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, so that's what I know about shoes. My other shoes are like I don't know these really soft Converse ones that are nice to walk-in but uh running in them i'm not sure how good that would go right so shoe technology tell me about it
0: well nike is also uh i just have a look at their their annual revenue for 2018 was 36.4 billion dollars
1: okay okay
0: so as equally a larger company so this is in terms of marketing as important to, to nike as it is to Ineos. now what they'll did last time was they introduced the vapor fly four percent because they said it would make you four percent fast no they didn't say it would make you four percent faster there's a four percent energy savings or conservation within um the running and within your running economy Now you got to remember when we talk running economy we're talking about oxygen cost at a certain speed um so if you're uneconomical, maybe you, if you incredibly uneconomical, would be skipping, right? You're trying to get height rather than f- forwards momentum. Um, <laughs> now, what Nike did was they um, developed the shoe with a certain um, cushioning system and carbon fiber leaf spring wow. within the shoe. Okay. So now you get uh, the energy savings or a, economical savings were around a recoil so um, our lower limbs act as spring, recoil springs so, so this is kind of
1: like, cycle. like the whole Oscar Pistorius argument where, um, you know, because he he has, um, I'm not sure actually what you call them, but he has carbon fibre leaf springs for his feet because he, he lost his legs, right? So yep. and they actually store and return energy better than our muscles and tendons. So yes. there's an argument that he's actually at a benefit to run faster because he has these kind of bionic um, legs.
0: Yeah, and initially people were like that is a ridiculous argument that because he has no legs he's advantaged compared to you know a fully limbed human. Um, and then when they tested them they like oh actually <laughs> these like carbon fiber specifically designed recoil leaf spring, lower limbs are far more efficient at providing Ford's momentum. It's what they're designed to do. Like you yeah, couldn't even is walk around in them properly. If you oh, watch the- video of him like walking, they're not designed to walk. They're designed to like, you know, for him to be at a running Ford's lean angle and pr- propel you forward. Like he sort of bounces around on them. Um, <laughs> Oh, okay, so,
1: so I mean that's what I'm
0: imagining when you're talking about these leaf spring shoes. Is that not what they are? Yeah, it's essentially so. There's a um, obviously the the way the spring's um, inlaid into the sole isn't the same as um, a vertical. You know, it's it's a horizontal spring um, that's within the sole. So you need the cushioning around it, and then you also need the spring. And so if you think of something, um, you know in my head I'm thinking gymnastics and there's that, that one where they run as fast as they can and they jump on the board and it springs and they do like the vault. Is that it? That's I don't spring. know actually what it's called. I think it's called the vault. Yeah. Right. Well, you think about the vault yeah. and you think about how that acts as a spring. It's almost, it's almost vertical, but it's not quite, it's not like a huge trampoline or anything. It's, And so if you imagine that sort of put into your shoe and when you stand, it's it vaults it vaults you, um, and it's it's like moon boots, yeah, like incredibly <laughs> exaggerated, um, and so that's how it's working. And the I read through that they publish they publish the research on the shoes they work. Of right? course, Nike
1: published research on their who I
0: mean no, it was where? independently done. And oh, and okay. I. I read I was like mm, we like how do these guys fit into to Nike and sure it does not work for everyone and we talked about that with Evan from Stride and um, but for the and they 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 specifically tested you know a certain cohort and disregarded outliers but on the consensus as you do like what Evan said there was people who gained 8% You know, and there was people who gained zero percent, and over the average, it was four. So you know, they're not—they don't have to claim the scientific results. They can just call their shoe four percent. They're not saying, like, scientifically, it's going to make you this much faster.
1: Yeah, and it really just makes you four percent more economical, which may not contribute to speed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, it may just um, improve if you just utilize four percent less oxygen which at or uh, a ventilation rate of man what would he be breathing like 80 liters a minute or more at 40 kgs so yeah i mean that's a lot of a lot of liters yeah but then like yeah as a 4% cost saving on that like absolute absorption of oxygen may not contribute to anything but
1: but it does what? when you're looking for 1%
0: yeah exactly when you're looking and because these shoes were developed around him Mm -hmm. so regardless of what they think about you know an 80 90 kg caucasian male banging out a local park run it's not for them it is for um you know it's sub 50 kg east african elite runner the best Um, the very best so they've developed the shoe around him so now the shoe definitely contributes to to the the increase in speed so the argument now is this is a paint patented proprietary technology by nike kind of like the brake power meter (laughs) well (laughs) it's more if we look back and think about do you remember speedo swimsuits you know when, Do they, I? when <laughs> they when they came, not those the, the when they came out of the Olympics and the world records just started getting absolutely demolished. They were wearing like full on speed like almost like a wetsuit. Right. and only Speedo sponsored athletes wore these suits. So in the two thousand or two thousand and four, two thousand and eight, definitely Olympics, two thousand eight for sure Speedo athletes were winning all the medals because they like literally had this ridiculous—I um want to call it—mechanical advantage of wow. these suits. So I now, did not know that that's not how—that's
1: not the speedo I know.
0: <laughs> if you're um, now, if you're running in in New New Balance or Puma or Adidas, are you now at a disadvantage? That, that is
1: marketing. This. That is marketing at at its very best. That is amazing, and that's exactly what sports marketing does. And that's why companies with big budgets get the best athletes. Suddenly, you're like, "Well, why would I use anything else? Because their stuff's way better."
0: But but what what's the, What happens when it is potentially better? Like that actually, is good. like act actually, they have a faster product on the market now. We go to the Olympics, and you're like, "Well." If if this is the case that it is, if you're wearing it, you are going to gain a percentage gain in your performance. There's no question about it. That's exactly what's happening
1: in that's any any sport, and this would have to be every sport. Any sport that in, involves technology, this is what's happening as as the as what as our equipment is innovated, right? So it, the same thing argument in downhill mountain biking, where everyone is saying that the Sal is the fastest bike available at the moment. So why is not everyone using a Common Sale, And why is not everyone who uses a Sal winning, actually? So, but what what happens is, you know, if we look back and we use downhill mountain biking as the example, 10 years ago, people were using 6-inch travel bikes with super steep head angles, which look like a cross-country bike of today. So obviously, they weren't going... That fast. So the technology has allowed the sport to advance and now riders are able to go fast and they wouldn't be able to push the boundaries like they are now with the same equipment they had then. So why
0: why is that a problem in running? Because running so pure? No, I'm happy. I'm happy for the sport to advance in terms of shoe technology. I know um, you are, but what's the argument? Like, what are people complaining about? No, the about? argument is like, what if people can run a minute faster purely because of the sponsorship they have, an endorsement deal they have with their shoe company. Or if someone doesn't have, you know, for whatever reason, they don't have access to the same equipment. I don't know. It It, it, it
1: forces innovation. It's forced innovation, and I love it. So all the other companies, you know, Reebok, um, <laughs> Reebok! <Ree-what? Salman. laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're they're making a comeback. You know, they, they have to innovate if they want to have a good product. And I yeah. think that that is perfect. That is absolutely perfect. So maybe what happens is they copy the same design or they license the same design and they sell it for less. So then what happens, what does Nike have to do? Then they have to either drop the price of theirs and make it more affordable for the consumer or they have to make an even better product. Yeah. And this is why we have supercomputers in our pockets, in our phones, right? This is, It's forced innovation. People are constantly innovating. And that's why innovation is exponential as we're going through time. There's more people. We have more
0: innovations. We need to innovate more. So I think that's great. Yeah. All right. Well, that's kind of the, the summary I wanted to... To present, um, there's so much more to go into, but I think one of the ones I want to talk about in um, future episodes, maybe next week, is heat, um, and going more into the actual science behind. Yeah, I oh, we should bring our friend JoJo on. <laughs> we will, we will. Um, otherwise, yeah, that's that's it. That's sort of the summary of how they were able to piece together the the point yeah. one there's... percenters to make up um, the new world's standard of marathon running
1: yeah and there's way more in it so we'll link the youtube video and uh, you can have a, a watch of the actually the this world record this record being made and um you know do some more research let us know if you find anything cool if you want us to touch on anything else in the next podcast
0: all right matthew you have a great week and we'll catch everyone next week
1: see ya